The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Our subject this evening is the light of the world. In November, Michelle Obama is releasing her next book. It's going to be called The Light We Carry. Its subject is how we can have a positive impact on the world, how we can give light to the world. And it's a fairly common image, isn't it? This week, you might have been woken up by fireworks by your neighbors or seen pictures of Rishi Sunak lighting candles as Hindus observe Diwali, the festival of light, celebrating light's triumph over darkness. But the claim of being the light of the world is not just an image, but it has practical implications. For most of the 20th century, both the Conservative and Labour parties had a torch in their logo. The claim being their policies and government would bring much-needed light to the UK. I think this winter will settle for light staying on. Or think of the Statue of Liberty holding out her torch and what that represents for some strands of US foreign policy. I was listening to a fascinating interview with Condoleezza Rice the other day, the former US Secretary of State. She was speaking about American military interventions around the world. And she didn't use the language of light and darkness. But it was clear that she thought America had a moral duty to bring light where it was in their power to do so. And with the kingdoms of this world, the claim that you have the light of the world and that other people don't necessitates some sort of imperialism whether that's using military force for the cause of liberty and democracy, or like our foreign office, using diplomatic pressure in the cause of progressive sexual ethics. It's a big claim to be the light of the world. And at least from Christmas time, uh, we'll know that it's a claim Jesus makes, and it's one he makes in our verses here as well, in verse 47. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The Gentiles just means different people groups or nations. Jesus came to be the light, the salvation of the whole world. We heard that salvation defined in Paul's sermon last week. In short, the light of the world is not like a little candle on a Christmas card. Jesus is saying he offers life and goodness and truth in a world that he says is defined by death and degeneracy and darkness. A friend of mine has a good response when someone says to him they don't like what Jesus says on this or that contemporary issue. He often says to them, Jesus says a lot of things that you'll find more offensive than that. The question is, does he have the right to say them? And Jesus says that the world without him is in darkness. It is ignorant about God and the truth about the world. 
Just think of the moral bankruptcy of relativism. He says it's degenerate. It's full of evil deeds. Think of the depths of the internet or the dark side of our own lives. And it's under the dominion of death, which is not only painfully sad, but it makes the whole of life ultimately meaningless. When you stand next to the grave of a friend or of a family member, as I did this summer, what hope do you have? Well, through Jesus' death and resurrection, he has shown that not only does he have the right to call out the world's darkness, but he also has the power to save it. Verse 47 again, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That is our key verse this evening. And I happen to think it's the most important verse in Acts. If we had to preach the book of Acts from one verse, I think this would be it. If we want to understand Acts, if we want to understand the work of God in the world today, we need to understand verse 47 properly in its context. So let's start by actually reading the whole verse. Verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Do you see what's happening there? Paul is saying the risen Lord Jesus has commanded him to be the light to the Gentiles, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul is saying that he's the light of the world. How can he possibly say that? I might be comfortable with Jesus saying he's the light of the world, but how is Paul? Well, it's because he speaks the words of Jesus. And as we've seen in Acts so far, after the Lord Jesus ascended, he continued to work by his spirit through his word. And that continues here. The word for commanded used in verse 47 is only used one other time in Acts. And that's in 1 verse 2 for the commands Jesus gave to his apostles about the work they were to do when he had ascended to the right hand of his father. And believe it or not, that phrase to the ends of the earth only comes up one other time as well. It's in the apostles' commission in chapter 1 verse 8 to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that is the new thing that's happening in this section of Acts. The church in Syrian Antioch has sent Paul and Barnabas out to preach in Gentile territory. The gospel has been preached in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. And now it's being preached to the ends of the earth. Not just to Gentiles, but to Gentiles in Gentile territory. The question is, can the gospel bring light to places that are drenched in darkness? Is there hope for your office or your student union where the darkness of this world seems so entrenched? It's hard enough to talk about Jesus with people who have some sort of Christian background and who sort of live by some sort of biblical morality. But what about those who know nothing about Jesus and whose lives seem completely opposed to the Bible? Who I think if they knew 10% of what I believed uh, would hate me for what I think. Or what do you think these early Christians would have thought about the chance of the gospel making ground in completely godless territory? Maybe people would be receptive in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, where the one true God has been historically worshipped. But fat chance where they live in total darkness. Well, Paul says, in that darkness, Jesus has commanded him, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The command comes from a prophecy of Isaiah in the Old Testament, 
And there's a bit more context on your handout if you wanted to look at it there. It speaks about the servant of God who will not only save God's people, um, but will bring about salvation to the whole world. In this section of Isaiah, one of the big things a servant does is to speak. And we see in verse 3 there of chapter 49 what the servant's weapon is. He says, he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. But no longer is he hidden. And the way Luke uses this verse in Acts shows us what Jesus really means as he commands Paul to be the light of the world. And the big thing we see is this. Jesus is the light of the world through his apostolic word. As we saw last week, Paul was not proclaiming himself, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Or what he calls in verse 26, the message of salvation, which more literally translated is the word of salvation. And I don't know if you noticed, but the word is the main subject of our verses. So in verse 44, it's the word of the Lord nearly the whole city gather to hear. In verse 46, it's the word of God that was spoken to the synagogue first. In verse 48, it was the word of the Lord that Gentiles rejoice and glorify in. And in verse 49, it's the word of the Lord that spreads through the whole region. And a few verses later in chapter 14, verse 3, it's also called the word of his grace. So we have the word of salvation, of God, of the Lord, of his grace. It is through this apostolic word that Paul is a light to the nations. As an apostle, Paul is an authoritative mouthpiece of the Lord Jesus. He has the authentic interpretation of Jesus' saving work in his death and resurrection. And in the first instance, he proclaims that, bringing light and salvation to this part of modern-day Turkey. People in total darkness have the opportunity to enter the light. I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And we're just going to consider three implications of these verses about what it means that Jesus is the light of the world through his apostolic word. And the first is rejection. The word of the Lord is rejected. Here, particularly by the religious. We saw last week Paul went to speak in the synagogue first to the Jews and those who fear God. Because Jesus came as the king of the Jews, the Messiah, the rescuer they were waiting for. And we saw in verse 42 that they begged that these things might be told to them again in the next Sabbath. And now we're here next week, and the wish came true in a bigger way than they could have imagined in verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. That is a memorable scene, isn't it? The numbers aren't quite like a modern-day city, maybe. But imagine thousands of people packed into Falcon Square to hear the word of the Lord. And everyone you know is there, even that music teacher from year two that you forgot. But as their wish became a reality, um, the Jews were not happy. Verse 45. When the Jews saw the crowd, they began to be filled with jealousy. And I wonder if they were jealous in large part because this is the impact they wanted to have. Those of us looking at Romans this year um, saw a few weeks ago that because the Jews had God's law, they saw themselves as a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness. They thought that they were the light of the world. But Paul was beginning to achieve what they were meant to be achieving, and he wasn't doing it through them. He wasn't doing it through their law, and they were jealous. 
We saw last week in verse 38 that through the word about Jesus, people can be freed from what they cannot be freed from by the law of Moses. And Paul had begun to accomplish in one week what they hadn't done for years. In one sense, what the law hadn't accomplished for a thousand years. The whole town had come to hear the word of the Lord. And because of their jealousy in verse 45, they contradicted what was spoken by Paul. It says they're reviling him. And the word is blaspheming. But I wonder if we're meant to see blaspheming there as blaspheming the Lord. We know it's the word of the Lord that Paul was speaking. And therefore, it's the word of the Lord that they were contradicting. In contradicting Paul, they were blaspheming or reviling the very words of God. And that is still the case when supposedly religious people um, do the same today. When a university chaplain tries to label the um, events week of the Christian Union as hateful or homophobic or whatever slur they'd like to use, and because the Christian Union is preaching the true gospel of repentance, um, even if they have a dog collar on, that chaplain is blaspheming. They are anti-Jesus. They're trying to make crooked the straight path of the Lord. They're trying to put the light out. And sometimes the spiritual thing to do is to point that out, to make clear that they're not on the same side, because they're not. And it doesn't help anyone's salvation, including theirs, to just muddle along and pretend to sort of agree to disagree. So Paul and Barnabas, they don't let it lie in verse 46. It says, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. And the word used for boldly there is one that Luke usually uses for spirit-empowered speaking of the gospel throughout Acts. For example, is what they go on to do in chapter 14, verse 3. But here, with the help of the Holy Spirit, they speak out boldly to point out that their opponents have rejected the word of salvation. And that is not an easy or a naturally enjoyable thing to do. But when people who claim to speak for God are publicly contradicting the word of God, it is a spiritual thing to do, to publicly say no. In rejecting the word of God, you're not on the side of God. It's not for argument's sake, it's for salvation's sake. And in contradicting Paul, Paul describes what they're really doing in verse 46. He said they thrust aside the word of God and they push it away. I have a one-year-old daughter called Rose, and she's uh, very happily a good eater. But sometimes she refuses food quite forcefully. Um, you give it to her, and she really thrusts it away. She shakes her head, and like Rene Ranger in his prime, she hands you off and pushes you right down. If she's decided she doesn't want the food, um, she doesn't want it. And we could be offering her autumn's finest truffle, or some Belgian chocolate from James. Um, we've never done that, um, but we could. And if she doesn't want it, no matter how good it is, um, she thrusts it aside. And that's what some of the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch have done. With the best thing they'll ever be offered, God's salvation. And notice how Paul describes their decision in verse 46. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. In rejecting the word of God, the word of salvation from Paul, they're judging themselves unworthy of eternal life. That is a striking way of putting it, isn't it? They have no one to blame but themselves. They have made their own bed. Eternal life is on a plate in front of them, 
and in pushing it away, they're judging themselves unworthy of it. And that's true of anyone who thrusts aside the gospel. In the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus and the forgiveness that brings, and God has made a way through Jesus that we can be judged worthy of eternal life. But if we don't accept that message, it is we who judge ourselves unworthy of it. We only have ourselves to blame uh, when we face judgment. Now here, this is not a once and for all rejection of the gospel by these Jews or by all Jews. As we see, Paul continues to go to synagogues first in towns. And we see in Luke and in Acts already, those who rejected Jesus, and even some involved in his trial, some of them later turned to repent. And we'll soon see in chapter 14, verse 1, that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed um, after hearing the preaching of Paul. But the way Paul uses this quotation from Isaiah, it shows that in God's overarching control and sovereignty of his world, he even uses the rejection of his historic people to fulfill his plan of salvation to the ends of the earth. The rejection of the word leads to the glorification of the word. They turn to the Gentiles. And that's our second implication, glorification. That's what's happening in verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Again, I wonder if we'd have put it like that, as we saw Gentiles turning to believe in the Lord Jesus. They glorified the word of the Lord. In some circles, it can be quite right on to speak of bibliolatry or disparage some people of believing in the Father, Son, and the Holy Bible. And although it's true that we can go very wrong if we elevate the Bible in a way and we forget whose words and who's actually speaking in it, most of those times, those accusations are infantile at best. That is because we encounter the living God, the Lord Jesus, in his word. Where God's word is spoken, it is as if God is there himself. The Gentiles glorify the word of God because they understand that through it, they're encountering the Lord himself and his salvation. That's a good thing to remember if you're ever accused of having too high a view of the Bible. They glorified the word of the Lord. And the second half of that verse is equally striking, verse 48. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. I think in the first place, this is a re-emphasis of the fact that it's not God's plan B. This was always his plan. It's not by chance if you came to the Lord Jesus from nowhere uh, in this room, as I know some of you might describe yourselves as doing. It's not by chance. Those Gentiles then, and anyone or everyone who glorifies the word of the Lord and believes, um, they've been appointed to do so by the living God. This shows us that not just and those who thrust aside the word of the Lord only have themselves to blame. But those who glorify the word of the Lord and believe only have God to thank. That's the Bible's unchanging picture of salvation. We don't have time to look at all the implications of that now. But if you wanted to think that through further, a great place to start would be to download the Bible Matters app and to type in sovereignty and salvation. And you'll find a very helpful talk on the topic. It's not by me. So, so, so there. Here, the light and the salvation of the Lord Jesus had come to the Gentiles in their own land with no pilgrimage or no passport needed. Through the word of the Lord, they can receive 
and what we saw in verse 34 and 35 last week, the blessing of God's king, an incorruptible life. This is why they rejoice and glorify the word of the Lord. The Lord Jesus, through Paul's words, has brought light and life to this part of the world, as he does today. And notice that those who believe not only glorify, but they rejoice. It really is an incredible privilege um, to be a Christian. It doesn't make life easy. In fact, it makes some things harder. But I was just sitting uh, in the park yesterday trying to think and reflect on what a privilege it is to be able to trust in Jesus for life and for death. Not that I don't ever have questions or doubts or that I understand everything. I'm far from it. But with the Lord Jesus, we have a solid foundation. We're not grasping around in the dark, heading for death. We live in the light, heading for life. And no matter what happens, um, that fact can never be taken away from us. And we can always be thankful for it. Jesus is the light of the world through his apostolic word. And although it be rejected by some, we can rejoice and glorify in his saving word. But lastly, I think it's really worth paying attention to the implication of verse 49, which I've tried to describe as multiplication. Uh, Verse 49. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Now we've seen Jesus as the light of the world. Through his word, Paul is the light of the world. But by that same logic, if you're a Christian here this evening and we accept and we speak the apostolic word, we are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. That's really been implicit in what we've seen so far, but now it's explicit. Verse 49 again, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. It's not saying that Paul himself traveled through the whole region in every town and village, but his apostolic word about Jesus did. Paul went to the heart of darkness in Antioch and he raised the torch of the light of the word of God. Then those who received it um, took on their own torches to the surrounding regions like some sort of multiplying Olympic torch thing going on. The gospel word was spread from person to person throughout the whole region. Just imagine for me for a moment a world map in Paul's day. Spiritually speaking, the world was mainly in total darkness. But then clusters of light started appearing in Jerusalem, then Judea, and then Samaria. And now a bit over in southern Galatia. And that pattern has continued for 2,000 years. For example, for most of that time, China has been largely in darkness. But for the last 70 years or so, lights have been switching on. In fact, millions of them. Which is just another incredible outworking of what God has already said would happen. From Jerusalem, China really is the ends of the earth. And in fact, the work of the servant from that passage in Isaiah Um, goes on to say in in chapter 49, verse 12, which is the last little verse on your handout. It says this, Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene, which I'm told is probably speaking about China. For the last 2,000 years, Jesus has continued to enlighten the world through his world, and he's still doing that today, and we can all be part of it. Or on that map, just think about James and Miriam in Brussels, or us here in London, um, and we think about where we're going tomorrow, where we live in our workplace. We all have gospel torches and lights to the world, this word of salvation. 
Michelle Obama's book, um, well, the title anyway, I think is a good metaphor for the Christian life, the light we carry. Insofar as we carry and seek to speak the word of the Lord, and we are a light of the world. That's true whether we like it or not, or whether we believe it or not. A friend of mine likes to say that we are the most important person our colleague or our neighbour or our friends know. It sounds self-important, but it's because of the word of salvation, the light of the world. We carry the same torch that Paul carried when he said that. And just one last observation as we close. I think I have to remind myself that morality without a message is not enough. The law, as we saw, was not enough to be the light of the world. And maybe we know that, but I wonder if we sometimes act like it or don't act like it, or at least I can, thinking that simply living morally uh, will be a light to the world. Well, synagogues in the Roman Empire were famous, even respected in many places, for their morality, but nobody got saved. We now have this word of salvation, this message, that is the light of the world through which people can be freed from what the law of Moses could not free people from. And if I want my neighbours, for example, to come to know Jesus, as well as living a moral life beside them, I have to try and get them to hear the message, to speak to them about it myself, to invite them somewhere where they'll hear it, or get them to read something about the Lord Jesus. Now, sometimes I can feel overly guilt-ridden about that when I put it all on my own shoulders. But just like I didn't save myself in my own strength, I won't speak in my own strength either. So I think I found the only way to do that sort of thing is to pray, 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 and to ask for boldness to speak. That is, in fact, what the apostles do in Acts, and it's a good pattern to follow. It's what being the light of the world is all about. If we understand verse 47, I think we understand the heart of the book of Acts. Jesus is powerfully at work today by his spirit through his word. That work is about saving people to the very ends of the earth, And we can be part of it. Believe this, you are the light of the world. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus, that he came to save us from the depths of darkness, to light and life with him. Thank you that he continues to be the light of the world through his word. Help us to really believe that. And please fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we might have the boldness to speak for him this week. Amen.